absolutely flying Great Britain. Great Britain are the world champions and they are now going to become the Olympic champions. They are on fire. They are on fire. Here comes Chris Hoy. Gold medal for Great Britain. A new world record. Kenny's got the head of the race and Bourget will not take it. Kenny is the Olympic sprint champion. He wins the gold medal and he won it in style. Victoria Pendleton has ignited the burners. Oh, she is the Olympic hearing champion. The gold medal is Great Britain's. Here they come up to the line. Oh, look at the time. It's a new world record. It's 2003. British cyclists have performed respectively in cycling events historically, but hardly been a powerhouse of the sport. Not to mention the fact that no British cyclist had ever won the Tour de France, arguably cycling's most prestigious award. So, when Dave Brailsford was appointed Performance Director of British Cycling in 2003, and later on in 2010 as the manager of the British-based cycling team, Team Sky, an innovative new approach to training these athletes was always going to be needed in order to take them to the next level. The solution was Brailsford's Marginal Gains Theory, which is also sometimes referred to as the aggregation of marginal gains, or the 1% factor. And if you're a fan of the podcast, you will have heard John and I speak about that back in the second episode of the podcast when we spoke about John Wooden's life lessons. And I think we might have touched on it as well in the, the podcast episode about legacy. But a very interesting theory that we're going to explain a little bit more deeper uh, throughout this podcast. And I'm going to share a few ideas and, and how I have taken it on board and a few things that I do in my sessions to try and get that 1% better at each and everything that we do. So what are marginal gains or what is marginal gains? Marginal gains is a theory that improving and optimizing your performance by small amounts across a number of different areas will lead to a much more significant, noticeable improvement overall. Essentially, if you look to improve everything that you do by 1%, even the smallest of details, the cumulative effect is much more substantial and the improvement as a whole is much more substantial. It's pioneer. Dave Brailsford looked at every possible area related to his cyclists and their sports performance and aimed to improve that just by 1%. And by everything, I literally mean everything. Naturally, they started with the obvious. They looked to make the seats of the bikes a little bit more comfortable for the athletes to use. They increased their understanding of the nutritional intake of each athlete. They analyzed the optimum temperature that cyclists' muscles needed to be at for peak performance. They then researched and found heated training shorts to keep them at that temperature. They started looking at the exact sort of bedding that would give athletes the best night's sleep in a temperature regulated room, again to help with their night's sleep. They experimented with different muscle gels and how best to apply them to the muscle for recovery. And they even started teaching their athletes how to wash their hands properly to minimize their chances of getting sick and disrupting training. And that kind of aligns a little bit with what I was talking about earlier on with the John Wooden episode because one of his big teaching points to his athletes when he first came in was he taught them how to tie their shoelaces properly. Put their socks on and tie their shoelaces properly because a wrinkle in a sock 
and an untied shoelace or an inappropriately tied shoelace can cause blisters. And if an athlete gets blisters, they spend less time on the training field or if they do play in the training field or the court as it is for basketball, they won't put their full effort into it because there's an annoyance there with the blisters so it affects their performance. So in a very similar way, washing your hands properly to make sure that you don't get any kind of infections or any sickness because that would then affect your performance and the amount of time you can train it was a very smart move. And I think if you look back on it, it was he actually got surgeons in to the team and taught them how to, to wash their hands in terms of a surgical procedure. Now, some of this might seem over the top, but the proof is completely clear to see. British cycling hadn't dominated before 2003, but after that, it pretty much did. And just after three years of being appointed from Team Sky, he led Bradley Wiggins to the Tour de France. Uh, what's more, at the peak of the success in the Olympics, British cyclists won a staggering 70% of the cycling gold medals available at the 2012 Olympics. And you heard a little bit of that in the introduction. So as trivial as some of the 1% marginal gains may seem, it's even widely reported that Bradley, Bradley Wiggins, was banned from carrying his own suitcase, his own travel luggage, in case he had uh, sustained a, an injury to the hand. So it was left for his wife to lift his hand luggage. That certainly seems over the top. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I'm not too sure. I haven't really looked at the um, the background or the validation of that, that information. But it certainly seems, though, that marginal gains can be an effective way to make significant improvements to your performance and the performance of the athletes that you work with. But to make change... Steve Brailford believes that we must accept what is included within the, what he believes is the triangle of change. So have a listen as Steve explains the components of the triangle of change at a League Manager's Association meeting in 2014. We work on this idea of, um, of, of trying to create um, what we call the triangle of change. Right. And essentially there's three elements that need to, if, if you want to change behaviour or you want to try and move something forward, I work very closely obviously with Steve who spoke earlier on. And, um, and basically the idea is very simple, that the, in order for somebody to change their behaviour, you have to, to have to be suffering enough, or the reward has to be great enough to engage with change. Mm. And if either one of those aren't in place, you're just going to more than likely carry on business as usual. The second thing is, you have to be psychologically minded. If you don't even think that you can change, even in the greatest adversity, if you don't think there's an opportunity to change, the likelihood will be that you won't. So you want to be psychologically minded. And the third thing that has to be there is commitment. The commitment to be better. Without commitment, we're all stuffed, right? We ain't going nowhere. So suffering and reward is something that we can actually impact. And the suffering normally comes in the form of consequence. And consequences normally, at the top of a team, a team management, coaches, etc. we can influence consequence. And I'm not sure we do it necessarily in a stick format or in an aggressive way. We do it in more subtle ways. Um, but sometimes it is a question of, look, you have responsibility as an athlete. This is what's expected. And we can increase the suffering to try and influence behaviour. Um, you know, a day-to-day -day example of that would be, I think, you know, plenty of people have affairs and they know it's wrong. They don't necessarily, you know, they're, they're off they go and they'll carry on. They'll carry on for years and years and years. And they won't stop until the suffering gets too great. And the suffering would be too great when you get found out. The other part side of that uh, equation is the other person who probably knows they're having an affair, the partner, actually will stay there for a long time because the suffering or the reward's not great enough to get out. So I think in all our jobs, you want to move performance forward, that little triangle of change and managing that triangle of change on a very conscious basis is something that you can impact on in terms of certainly process. Now, it's all well and good giving examples of marginal gains that relate to elite sports performers. But have you ever thought of using the same theory on your own coaching practices? 
I first came across the idea when I read Black Box Thinking by Matthew Syed, a book that completely captivated my imagination and one that I can easily say with full confidence is the book that had the biggest impact on my coaching practices and how I think about coaching as a whole, which is quite unique given the fact that I don't recall anywhere in the book it talking specifically about how you can improve coaching practices. So it was reading those ideas, particularly about Sir Steve Brailford, and, and, and trying to bring them into my life and how I can adapt and change for the better using the lessons in the book. So here's a few that I've adapted and added to my coaching uh, practices thanks to my understanding of marginal gains. The first is that I plan for multifunctional practices. So instead of planning for exact numbers, I'll often plan sessions around numbers that will make the, fle- make the practice flexible but focus on the same principles. So in essence, I'm performing what Mark Bennett would call a pre-mortem. So we're thinking about problems that might arise and having solutions at hand ready to overcome them if they do. So for example, if a session is on a defensive shape of midfielders, I'll plan that session around having three defenders, four defenders or five defenders. Planning for odd and even numbers, thinking about do I need a spare player? Can I run the practice with overloads or underloads? Do I need a different coloured bib? If I were you to use a spare player, and if I did use a spare player, how does that then affect scoring and flow of the game? So as opposed to saying this session is going to work on defensive shape of midfielders with 18 players, I'm thinking, right, well, I should have 18 players. And if I don't, if I've got 17, this is what I do. If I've got 16, this is what I do. If I've got 15, this is what I do. So it's normally in around that 15 to 18 mark. I'll have an idea of how I can adapt the practice. My second point is that I identify players for specific roles. So where possible before the session, I'll have players allocated to positions or teams for the small set of games or the phase of play. This allows me to give a bit more specific information to those players in relation to the rules and responsibilities of that session. And it follows on from the previous point in that I normally plan a few different teams in the event of injuries, sickness and dropouts. So if I've got 18 players and I know what potential five that I want across the midfield when working in defensive shape, I will try where possible to plan. Well, if I don't have X player, I can use Y. If he's not there, I can move him. So I already have an idea of, well, just in case this doesn't work out, here's how I can change it. It doesn't happen all the time and who's to say that it's, it is effective, but I certainly feel that helps with the flow of the, of the sessions. Um, I speak to the individual, or at least I try sometimes to speak to the individual through the collective. So I'll often arrange team meetings once a week or once every other week. And in these meetings, I show some video analysis. The analysis may be specific just to one player, but it may be beneficial for others to see. And so doing it at a team meeting allows me to focus on more than one player in a more time efficient manner, as opposed to going around every single player and doing a 10, 15 minute analysis session with them and only being... Uh, a contact time with them is only twice a week it's an hour and a half, three three hours a week so I don't have the time to go around every single player and do it so this way if I know that it has a relation to a number of different players but I want to be specific to one player I can do it in the team meeting so that it it becomes a bit more of, of understanding for the collective as well as just the individual I use the technique flyby coaching, you may or may not have heard that so where possible, I try not to stop the sessions to speak to individual players. So if a player has made a mistake or has made a decision that I'm not quite sure of and I want to find out a bit more about, I won't just go stop, stand still and speak to that specific player. I will wait until the session is over or there's a break or we're on my side of the pitch or they go for a water break and then sort of question them then, have a chat with them then. Obviously, uh, there are times when players may need information given to them in situ. 
But that's a case of getting a feel for the session and a feel for what your player actually needs and how they respond to feedback. I also have started to record sessions, so video record and audio, basically for a number of reasons, but the first and probably most important was to follow on from point four, because we often at times reference previous sessions before we start the current session. And I was beginning to wonder, Willie, do, do players actually take on board what you say in previous sessions and can they remember? And are they just nodding and agreeing and are they just telling me what I want, to, what they think I want to hear? So by recording the sessions, you can go back and you can watch and then you can compare the two sessions to see what actually did or they didn't, who needs more specific information, who doesn't. And then you can use that and those pieces of video in your analysis sessions for other team meetings or for individuals as well. On the whole, I feel these small changes, although not to the scale of those made by Sir Dave Brailsford, have helped to make our sessions more informative and effective, as well as increasing player engagement and understanding. And of course, there's a lot more to it than just making changes and running with them. I feel that you need to have a constant state of reflection to make sure that you're just making ch- that you're not just making changes for making changes' sake, that they're actually effective and they add some value to your coaching practice. I do genuinely hope that you have found something useful from it and you've enjoyed listening to it. And if you did and you think that friends, family and colleagues might enjoy it as well and get something from it, it would be fantastic if you could share that with them as well. But as we come to the end of the episode, um, I want you to listen to what Sir Steve Brailford has to say about the marginal gains theory. This afternoon, we have someone who is hailed as a sporting guru. He transformed the British Olympic cycling team into probably the best sports team in the world. And at Team Sky, his riders have delivered three Tour de France victories in the last four years. Would you please give a warm welcome to Sir Dave Brailsford. You know, I wasn't great at school, but I found my calling, if you like, in sports science, sports nutrition, sport. I loved it all. There was a lot of crossover between the good bits of sport that business could learn from, but there's an awful lot of good practice in business that sports could learn from. 90% of my time is spent thinking about and watching people I've got in the team. And you genuinely get inside their shoes and see the world through their eyes. And can you create an optimal environment where a human being is going to have the best chance of being the best they could possibly be? When we started out, the top of the mountain for us seems so far away. If you just stop for a minute, you say, is there any way that you could progress a little bit from where you are now Of course there is, yeah. I could do that a little bit better. I could do this a little bit better. It doesn't matter how small the improvement, we're going to do it. We're going to energise each other and we're going to create a culture which is about this idea of continuous learning, continuous improvement. We differentiate clearly between their dreams, which is what we'd like to happen, win the Olympic medal, win the Tour of France, and targets. Targets are the things I can make happen. You can just make small change and be very, very good at delivering those small changes. Emotionally, it's very, very difficult not to think about the consequence of what we're about to do. I don't want to make a fool of myself. I don't want to look stupid. All of those emotions can hijack you right at the moment where you don't want it to happen. So forget the result. 
If you're worried about the bearing of the result, the chance of you performing well in that particular moment at a particular day is reduced. The whole notion of there's no I in team, and I, I must say I don't buy it. Whether we know it or not, we're kind of making a calculation. What's in this for me? So what I work very hard on is I look at each individual and I try and figure out what's in it for them. If you can align what they're doing with a group of other people behind the goal, then you're in business. It doesn't matter whether they get on or not. I absolutely and utterly believe in giving people as much ownership as possible. For me, human beings, we like to have an influence over what we do and how we do it. The people who I see being successful, the doers, they get shit done. You can walk a thousand miles, you can only do it a step at a time. But it doesn't take long before you've done quite a few steps. Yeah. If you go after all of these incremental gains, aggregating them together, we were capable of getting better. It was something that we could believe in and we could achieve.